Psalm 139. So the dilemma is this. We don't really know ourselves, okay? We don't really know ourselves. We, we think we know ourselves. We think we have a handle on who we are and what we like and the things that we're drawn to, the things that are going to give us the most comfort, the things that are going to fulfill our greatest desires. We think we know ourselves. In reality, we don't really know ourselves. And that's actually one of the themes of the Bible is God just invading people's lives to remind them that they don't really know what's going on about the deepest intimate recesses of their hearts. Um, You know, Romania was one of those things that exposed that uh, in us. Um, It exposed that our, you know, our greatest dilemmas are not really dilemmas, okay? It exposed that our greatest dilemmas right now are, are trying to find pokey stops, you know, in our lives. It exposed sort of the, the silliness and the ridiculousness of some of the things that we just tend to go after and we push so hard into. And so the dilemma that we face is thinking that we know ourselves and we know what we want and we know what we need, um, when in reality what we need is for God to know us. We need God to know us. Um, and by God knowing us is how we actually come into a way of knowing him. See, we don't get to know God or know things about God until God knows us. It's very clear in Scripture that this thing that happens between us as a relationship between God and man has to be initiated by God, right? And so we're going to see David kind of dive into the implications of that and that, um, man, this is a sobering and it's also a soothing truth for us. And what's great about Psalm 139 is it's just this majestic psalm where David comes in, he's reflecting about everything that God is. The fact that God is omniscient, the fact that God is omnipresent, the fact that God is omnipotent. We're going to look into some of these things this week and again next week. And, but David just does this so beautifully uh, in, in this psalm. And again, I, I, after we read this psalm, after we go through this today, what I would really encourage you all to do is to, to continue to go back to Psalm 139. Now reflect on this. This is a psalm that we want to go back to often. It's kind of like Psalm 23 for us. We want to go back to it as a source of hope and comfort in our lives. And so I would say as much as you can um, on your your own private uh, personal devotion time or in your groups or as spouses, go back to Psalm 139. When you find yourself in crisis, go back to Psalm 139. When you're feeling lonely, go back to Psalm 139. I mean, I just preach Psalm 139 every week if I could. That's how I feel about this right now, you know? And we're going to start First Peter in September. I feel like I just want to do First Peter and then at the end go, all right, turn back to Psalm 139 because we're going to do our Psalm 139 study now for the end of the... But I mean, that's how important I feel like this psalm is in terms of what it does and how it can manage our souls, okay? Um, and really the main point is simply this, is that God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And there's something about that truth that is supposed to fill us with both awe and wonder and hope for him. Because at the end of the day, we're never alone if we are known by God. We're never alone. And the implications of that truth for our lives are just massive. They're just ginormous. They're as big as big can be. So let's just dive in. Psalm 139 and pick up at the top. 
This is David. And he says this. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Let's just stop right there. Now, what David is diving into here, what he's reflecting and meditating on, is this thing that we call God's omniscience, right? There's the fancy word for you today to wow you with my impressive seminary knowledge. Omniscience, and all that means is to have all omni-knowledge, which is another word for science. So omniscience is to have all knowledge about everything. That, that's my, that's, that's the chicken supervision I'm giving you right there. God knows everything. That's it. That's being omniscient. There is nothing that is unknown to God. And you, know, you just think about that and you go, yeah, duh, I know that. But no, but you've got you to let that settle in as we continue to go through the text here. There is nothing in your life that is unknown to God. David says right at the top here, oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. That's not like a cursory search. It's not like God like dipped like the half of his hand inside of you and felt around and went, yeah, okay, I, I think I got the picture. No, no, no. He's fully invested in every minute part of your life. When it says God searches you and knows you, it means he knows all because God knows all, right? And here's what's interesting. When God searches us, he doesn't gain any knowledge for himself. He doesn't. He reveals knowledge about himself to us. That's the big takeaway with that. Man, we are not like needles in a haystack to God, right? It's not like God can't find that missing sock when he searches our hearts. That's not what's going on, right? We are not a mystery to God. Ain't none of you all are a mystery to God, right? Our thoughts don't perplex him. Our lives don't shock him. He never peers into the inner chambers of our souls and says, wow. He doesn't do that. We are not uncharted territory to God. And so David breaks down the implications of this truth and it, it kind of leaves him reeling with just this overwhelming sense of awe and wonder. He exposes his mind and his heart to the sobering reality of what it means to be searched and known by God. And then he kind of reports his findings here as we get into verse 2 through 6 by noting that in verse 2, every public action that you take, that I take, every private thought that you ever have known to God. Verse 3, all of your comings and your goings, right? All your routines, the times you work, the times you rest, Everything that you engage in, known to God. Verse 4, it gets even worse. All right? God knows what you're going to say before you even say it. I mean, that's sobering. I mean, he just knew that I was going to say that's sobering. I didn't know I was going to say it like that. I mean, what do you do with a God that already knows your thoughts and knows what you're going to say before you say it? It's sobering. And then verse 5, God sets our limitations. He hems us in. 
That's what that means. He sets our limitations. And then he guides us through the limitations that he sets for us that he controls. You are where you are because God allows you to be where you are. I mean, any sense of cockiness or arrogance or I got this thing. I mean, it just rolls out the door when you start diving through the implications of what it means to be under the control of an omniscient God. I mean, if you meditate on what we just read, then there has to be a level of sobriety that starts to well up in you a little bit, right? I mean, right now, God knows every thought that you're thinking. He knows every plan that you're hatching. Every voice speaking in your head right now that's not the preacher... He, he knows what it is. He knew what your morning would be like last night. And some of you guys had some rough mornings this morning, for sure. He knows why you picked the chair you picked. Why you're sitting where you're sitting. He knows what donut you're going to eat in the cafe. Yeah. He knows how many donuts you're going to eat in the cafe as well. He possesses all knowledge all. He's omniscient. We possess us, we, we possess some knowledge. We possess limited knowledge. We possess very little knowledge. I mean, we, we're not omni-anything, right? I mean, we're omni-ridiculous. I mean, we're omni-idiotic. That's what we are, right? I mean, what do we possess? What do you possess? What, the ability to multitask? You know, like that's what you got. That's your omni. You can do two things at once. You can chew gum, rub your head. You know, you got like those kind of skills. I mean, that's what we bring to the table. It's ridiculous. It's pathetic because there's a ceiling to what we know, man. And we can wax philosophical about humans, but we'll never be able to write down on our resume that we created humans. Can we? We don't have any of that. So David here He's, he's awestruck. He's dumbfounded as he reflects and describes just this vast and unlimited quality and quantity of God's intimate and infinite knowledge about us. How many of you guys are going to watch uh, the Olympics? You can admit it. It's okay. I, I was, we were in Romania, and I asked Dave Durlin, I go, I go, dude, I go, does anybody watch the Olympics anymore? And he started cracking up. You know, I, you know, I, I just don't know. I don't know who watches those things. At some point, all right, at some point in your Olympics watching, uh, some athlete is going to do something that no other athlete has been able to do. It happens, I feel like, every four years, and everybody's going to just go nuts about it, right? Some dude's going to break some record, some woman's going to break some record, and that's the one that everybody's going to be talking about and be astounded by and be awestruck uh, by. Um, And that's because they're going to exceed everyone else's limitations in the sport that they've mastered. That's why we're awestruck, because they've exceeded anything that anybody else can do. And all of us, man, we're just going to be in awe. We're going to be reading about it. We're going to be seeing it. We're going to be seeing replay after replay. And we're going to be in awe and wonder because they've achieved something that we can't do. So as David here describes God's omniscience, there's a sense of awe. There's a sense of wonder that comes over him as he contemplates the implications of what I like to call God's godness, right? Right? 
his godness, his, his just all these things that we wish we had words to describe. And I'm just not the smartest guy in the world, so I don't have like all the words I need right now to describe how large God is. So I just say the godness of God. Look what it says in, in uh, verse 6, because I think David feels a little bit of my frustration here, right? You get to verse 6, and it's like he finally gives up, and he says, dude, I don't get it. Like, I don't got anything for this. It's too wonderful. It's too beyond my grasp. He said, it's too wonderful. It's too high. He says, I can't attain it. I mean, can we, can we just pause on that for a second? I mean, he lays out all of these things. He lays out all these qualities about God's infinite knowledge. And then he says, I might as well just stop because I don't get any of it. Like, I've described it the best way I can describe it. I don't get any of it now. I think what's interesting about these revelations is that they don't discourage and they don't deflate David on any level. He reaches his ceiling. He says, it's too wonderful. It's too high. But notice that he doesn't seem defeated and discouraged. He doesn't seem deflated by this information and this revelation that is far beyond his grasp and our grasp. You you guys know when you find yourself surrounded by like really smart or gifted people, like it happens to me all the time. You're in a room with like people that are way smarter. You're not the brightest bulb in the room. And um, man, sometimes, you know, you just, you're kind of standing there and you feel out of your league and you feel kind of inferior. What's interesting about this is that David's not feeling that way. He's not feeling crushed by it. He's not feeling like it's anything he needs to just sort of fall down and warm away. He's not crushed. He's not crushed under the weight of what we would call kind of these aha moments, right? These revelations, these realizations about God. It's just the opposite, actually. David is rejoicing that he is known this intimately by God. By a God where nothing is overlooked. By a God where nothing escapes his thoughts. Nothing is forgotten. David doesn't have to grasp this because he knows he can't. He doesn't have to lower God to a level that makes him more comfortable either. Do we do that? Do we do that? Yeah. Do we lower God to a level so that we can grasp him, so that we can feel a little more comfortable in his presence, so that we can shape him, so that we can form him and bring him a little more into our image, so that we're comfortable with him knowing everything, kind of? David doesn't do that. He says, this is beyond me. And he leaves it at that. Because there wouldn't be any awe or wonder if he was able to bring God down to his level. So for David, he's awestruck by the knowledge of God. Let's turn to Romans. Let's make a right. Let's go to Romans 11.33. Because I want want us to see how Paul echoes David here in laying out the infinite capacity of of God. Romans 11:33. Paul echoes David by saying the depths of God's wisdom, knowledge and judgment, they're just unable to be grasped. See, and I think the problem is is that if I sat down with each one of you, you'd say, "Well, duh, yeah, I get that. They they can't be grasped." We get that, but then we don't live out the implications of that because if we really believed that, if we really took what David said to heart, and we let that marinate in us, we would live our lives a little bit 
differently, especially when crisis comes, especially when conflict comes. Let's read Romans 11.33. It says this. It says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. And then he, then he, he, he does a couple of quotes here from Isaiah and Job. And he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Like, who can know it? That's what David's saying. Like, how, how, how can we even grasp that? We don't got the goods for that. Or who has been his counselor? In other words, like, who tells Jesus what his, who tells God what his next step needs to be? You know, we don't tell God when he's made a move that we think, you know, I, I just think next time maybe you should sort of do it this way or that way. Right? Paul's saying, who has been his counselor? 35, or who has given a gift to him? That he might be repaid. I mean, you don't give somebody a gift who already owns everything. I mean, I know that was like when I used to try to buy my dad birthday presents. But in reality, I just was lazy. If I searched long enough and hard enough, I could have found the old guy something he would have liked. I just didn't feel like it, right? Because it felt like he owned everything. Well, technically speaking, he owns nothing. God owns everything. And we can't repay him or we can't give him something because he's not lacking anything. He made everything. He owns everything. It's his. It's his. All of this. It's his. He owns it. He'd probably like a little better interior decorating, but he owns it. It's his. And then 38 says, 36 says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And that's Paul trying to be as comprehensive as he can to show us the limitlessness of God. To him be glory forever. Amen. So like David All of this causes Paul to rejoice. It causes him to rejoice because a God who does not know all things cannot be trusted in all things. If there's something God doesn't know, then how do we know we can trust what we think he does know? We can't. So God is all-knowing. God is also all-present. God is omnipresent. What that means is that means he's he's all present. It means there is no place where God is not. It means he doesn't take up physical space, right? But his spirit is fully present in every place. So there is no crevice or rock or any place or closets or location or church or street or country or state or town or garage or ha- there's no place Applebee's all right there's no place where God isn't he's everywhere God is omnipresent let's read uh, let's pick back up in Psalm 39 139 we're going to pick up in verse 7 it says this David just continues. He just continues along the same theme and he gets into God's presence and he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall, where shall I flee from your presence? He's asking the question. He said, look, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I go to heaven, you're there. And then he says, if I make my bed in Sheol, or if I, if I descend into the grave is what he means there, he says, you're there. He says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Now, back then, you got to understand that the sea was a very fearful place uh, in the ancient world because it was unknown. Um, and so he says, if I take the wings of morning, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the most fearful place for me, even your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. 
And then he says this remarkable thing in verse 11. Look what he says. He goes, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. I mean, that doesn't mean like God wears infrared goggles, right? It means that he is not held by the same constraints, the same physical properties that we are held by. He says, the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. It's a phenomenal statement. So what David is saying is that the dilemma here for us, the sober dilemma, is that there's nowhere to hide from God. There's nowhere to hide from God. His presence has no boundaries from heaven to the grave to the sea, right? He's there. God is there. That's either really scary to you or it's soothing to you. Because there is no place where God's presence is absent. And yet even in the most desolate of places, it it means hope is not absent. Because where God is, hope remains. Hope lies. Darkness is not even an obstacle for God. He's not held back by the same things that become obstacles for us. His vision isn't impaired like our vision is impaired. He's not a physical being held back by physical properties. Let's go to uh, Jonah. Turn right. Let's go to Jonah 2 here because Jonah is a dude that at one point tried to run from God and he found out the futility of what it means when we think that we can start living lives in the absence of God. It's futile thinking for us. And we look at the story of Jonah. We look at a guy who was told to go preach a message in a foreign city. And Jonah gets on a boat and goes the other way. He goes south instead. And God's just like, I mean, what do you think? Like, what does that even mean? You know what I mean? That, that would be like looking down like on an ant colony and you telling an ant to go left. And he goes right and saying, there, I escaped him. You know? It's, just, it's, it's ludicrous, right? It's ludicrous. And so Jonah gets into this place where God sends a rather large fish to gobble him up so that he would come to his senses and come back to being an obedient follower of the Lord. And this is what he says when we look in Jonah 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. By the way, we, uh, we believe the Bible when it says the belly of a fish. We believe it's the belly of a fish. We believe that God is, is God enough to, uh, to create a fish big enough to gobble up a guy who comes in the middle of that fish to some implications about God that God is calling him to come to. And so he says this, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. All right? So God knows where Jonah is. God is not absent from the belly of that fish with Jonah. And he says, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. The implications of God's presence with us, the implications of God being with you, is that he hears you. He hears you. Jonah says, for you cast me, you, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, all your waves, not the waves of the sea, your waves, you own the waves. All your billows, you own the billows. I forget what a billow is, but he owns the billows, all right? They passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon 
your holy temple. So we see what God's omnipresence does for us. It intercedes for us. It hears us. He uses things in our life to show us that we can escape and that that's a good thing. Because he's there, he also pulls us back. He pulls us back. The word obstacle doesn't exist in God's vocabulary. Isn't that crazy? I mean, there's so much. I can't, I can't hardly do anything because everything's an obstacle. I mean, everything's an obstacle, right? I mean, I trip over things. Like I get out of the car and I trip over something. And it was like a rock. Like that's an obstacle. God doesn't trip. God doesn't trip over anything. Obstacles don't exist. God knows everything. God is everywhere. And you know what's great about that? Here's two things. Here's two benefits that are great about his omniscience and his omnipresence. Number one is this. You can't do anything to catch God off guard. Think about that. You can't do anything to catch God off guard. God knows you better than you know yourself. You can be wrong about yourself. All right? Like, I can be wrong about myself. You don't believe me? I mean, have you ever made a mistake? Have you ever made a mistake? Make a mistake is just being wrong about yourself, right? Ever made a wrong decision? Ever bought something that you thought you wanted that's now collecting dust in your attic right now? Right? Ever made a bad relational decision? God is never in the dark about those things. God is never in the dark about your decision-making process. You are never tripping God up. He already knows your future thoughts. He already knows your future decisions. He already knows your future victories, your future failures, your future messes. He's not caught off guard. That should be comforting. It's awesome and it's mind-boggling, but it should also be soothing and comforting. So you can't do anything to catch off guard. Here's the second thing. Your flaws don't handicap God. All right? Let me flesh that out for one second. Your flaws don't handicap God. All right? He starts every work in you knowing your flaws and your sin. So everything God has purposed to do in you, all of your flaws, all of your sin is already known because he's omniscient. It's already been accounted for. Your job, your family, your talents, the opportunities that you receive, they're all given to you by a God who knows how screwed up you are. You know, you don't have what you have because at some point you reach some golden zenith of perfection. I don't either. And was David flawed? Is this a flawed man that God was working through? Was Moses? Was Abraham? Was Sarah? Was Peter? Was Paul? Yeah. The reason God can call flawed people is because his flawlessness works through them to accomplish his will. That's what's happening. And because he sent a flawless son to die for those irreparably flawed by sin. So yeah, there's no flawlessness in us, but that doesn't handicap God because he's flawless. So again, what this does for us is it creates incredibly sobering news for us. There's not a solitary thought or movement 
that you will think or make that is not known by God. But it's also soothing. It's soothing. Because if God was any less than this, then we wouldn't be able to depend on or experience the unfaltering and infinite love and care that he gives to us. You heard Ashley talk about Lucretia. I think she was, was she, Dave, 84? 84 years old. Um, living in the hills of Romania in a one-room house with the following amenities. One bed and one wood stove. One bed and one wood stove. I mean, Laura Ingalls' home in Little House on the Prairie was like a palatial estate by comparison to this. And I know because I've watched every episode of Little House on the Prairie in my lifetime. So what we did was we hiked part of the way up the mountain. And it was a mountain. And it wasn't some, you know, paved road with steps. And, you know, they decided to put the granite in instead of the cobblestone when they were doing the paving. It wasn't anything like that. It was just a mountain with kind of a trail that we had to hike up. And what we did was we went into our house and we all stood there mildly shocked, embarrassingly so. And we sat with her and we talked with her and we prayed with her and we sang songs with her. And I don't know how, but somehow there was joy. There there were hopeful tears in Lucretia's eyes. I mean, how? How is that possible? Well, because Lucretia was known by God. She was known by God because she wasn't really alone. She wasn't really alone. Because even after we left, there was an all-knowing God, an all-present God that searched her thoughts and made himself known to her through us. There was an all-present God who was with her in that one-room shanty as much as he's here with us in this warehouse. Which is not that much better if I'm going to be honest with you guys. Isn't that a profound thought to think about that? The same God that was ministering to this woman that the entire world has forgotten about was there just as deeply as he is here right now. The omniscience the omnipresence of God. We are in no better hands than Lucretia. We just have hot and cold running water. We are never alone if we are known by God. You know what the biggest implication of that is? Is that being known by God is the only way that you can know God's Son. And that's really what all of this boils down to. That's the reason why I say known by God instead of if you know God, right? Because, I, look, I can't overstress this right now. You can know lots of things about God. Man, if you have a background in Sunday school, you probably have some knowledge. I mean, you can probably come off with some things. If I asked you, yeah, tell me about the gospel and you know, tell me what you know about Jesus and tell me what you know about the cross. And I know that a lot of you can give me answers that have accumulated in your mind, right? You can know things about God. You can proclaim a thousand truths about God without being known by God. And there's a part of that that should leave all of us a little trembly right now. Because if God didn't seek you out, you'd be lost. You'd be lost. 
I don't know how much knowledge Lucretia had about God. I don't know how far her theology had like taken her. I don't know. But I know that she was known by God, and I know that she could articulate the fact that her salvation came through God and Christ alone. And it was because of that that she could cry tears that were also laced with hope and laced with some measure of of joy. God at one point sought Lucretia out in the middle of that village on the side of that hill in that house that would fit three of on this stage. He sought Lucretia out. He found her. Have you ever lost your kid? Uh, Nobody wants to admit that right now. We did like 78 times. She's still alive. Um, Now, are you a kid? Are you a kid here that's ever gotten lost? Can I I see a show of hands? Miles, you're not a kid, brother. Nobody wants to admit that. Um, I remember one time I got on the wrong bus on my way to kindergarten. And the driver didn't know where I was from, and I'm too little to know where I'm from. And he's driving me, and we're driving for hours and hours. And at some point, you know, I see my mom and dad standing there like that. You know, they pull up to the stop of their eyes and the whole thing. Um, what do you do when you lose your kid, right? What do you do? You panic, right? It's like, it's mayhem. You panic when you lose your You don't sit there and say, you know what, no big, man. They're just going to find their way back. So, you know, let's order a couple of burgers, and we'll sit here and just relax until they weed their way through the crowd and find their way back to us. I mean, you don't do that because they don't find their way back. They don't. Sorry, kids, you're just not that bright. I mean, they don't find their way back when they're lost in the mall or at Cedar Point. They're not going to do that, you know? You search for them. You find them. They're not cats. You got to go after them. And when they see you, they know you because you already knew them before they were even born. You knew them. And you knew how to find them. And that's what it means when we talk about being known by God, being searched by God, having a God that cares about you to the depths that he gets in and he reveals himself and his son to you. God initiates the knowing process. None of you were born with a faith gene inside of you that was just waiting to activate as soon as you pulled your head out of the sand. That's not what happened. If you are known by God, it's because this. It's because Romans 8.30 says, because those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom whom he also called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see the process there? I don't see anywhere in there that says we had a lot to do with that. It was all God. Thank you that it was all God. Because I'm somebody that just wanders away. I'm a kid that wanders away in the mall. I'm a kid that wanders away at Cedar Point. This is sobering for us. This is sobering. Because we should find ourselves in awe over the seriousness of this truth. But it should be soothing because it means God loves those he knows to a degree that you will if you know Jesus. Matthew 7, it says, That when those who God doesn't know stand before him on judgment day, this is what he says. All right, listen, because this is heavy, horrible news. He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Doesn't talk about their knowledge of him. It says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know what those people say? 
You know what those people's response to God is? They say, wait, man, we learned things about you. We did stuff for you. We served you. Like there's almost like an indignant like response to God. Like, wait a minute. Don't tell us, don't tell us you don't know us. We did things for you, right? The problem was that when God searched them, he didn't find a repentant heart. And a repentant heart is the only heart that knows Jesus. Lucretia had a repentant heart for Jesus because God knew her. If God knows you, then there's going to be evidence that you've been searched and known by God. If God knows you, listen, you'll be gripped by the same awe and wonder and hope and love and devotion to God that gripped David as he wrote this psalm. If God knows you, you'll know the depth of your sin. If God knows you, you'll know the lengths God went to send his son to die for your sins on the cross. If God knows you, your life will undergo transformation and change. If God knows you, you'll desire to know him more deeply because if you've truly encountered God, you can't walk away unaffected. David was not left unaffected. Either was that 84-year-old old lady on the side of the mountain. She wasn't unaffected. God was changing her. God was transforming her. There was a glow to Lucretia. And she had none of the things that we possess. And yet she possessed everything there is to have by being known by God. A God who knows everything, a God who is everywhere, a God who never lets us out of his sight, a God where even the darkness is not dark to him. It's dark to you, though, isn't it? The darkness is dark to you. It's dark to me. It's dark to me, but it's not dark to him. And because I'm known by him, it means that I'm not alone in the darkness. Before we went back down the mountain, it was amazing. We surrounded Lucretia, and everybody's crying at this point. And we sang that song, All I Have is Christ. We sang it here a lot. And it was amazing because I felt like the song finally carried the weight of that truth as we sang it. We're never alone when we are known by God. You're never alone if you're known by God. And being known by God is being repentant to God for the work of Christ on the cross. I want to finish today with a quote from J.I. Packer. Jim Packer, if you know him. I don't, so I'm going to call him J.I. Packer. Um, This is what he said in his book, Knowing God, and then we're going to close. He said, what matters supremely, therefore, is not, in the end, in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. We just sang that. We sang before the throne. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me 
And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. That's being known by God. Let's pray. God, this is a truth that is almost too much to to soak in, to understand. It's like David said, we think about your unlimited knowledge and your your presence, your omnipresence, and we just can't even grasp what that means. And yet we know that you've not left us alone. We know that you sent your son to invade a world of sin so that we could be known by you so that that omniscience and omnipresence could manifest itself in our lives. So like Lucretia, no matter what happens, no matter what kind of darkness that we face, we know that those things are not obstacles for you. You've promised to care for us and to love us and to hold us in your grasp because you know what we think before we think it. And we can't run and we can't hide from you. And you draw us in and you map out our comings and our goings and our limitations and you guide us with your hand. But thank you for the comfort that comes in knowing that and in believing that. Give us the faith to believe that, to receive that. Give us the faith to live as people that trust you implicitly. Let us be reminded of of your holiness and your majesty and your all-consuming goodness because it's contained in the words that we just read and it's available to us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would reveal those things to us, that you would allow us to be people that would share that hope and that truth with others, that we would remind our brothers and sisters that the darkness is not dark to you. The darkness is as light to you. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. May it impact us ever more deeply, we pray this week. And all God's people said... Amen and amen.